No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia. America's Last Colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So if you want to be part of the conversation, you can call in at 888-627-6008. We have a really wonderful guest tonight, Marilia it's great to, to, to hear you. Uh, we're Thank looking you, forward to, to a lively discussion. And uh, our tonight's get is, guest is legendary Congressman Representative Barney Frank, who served as a member of the U.S. House for an amazing 16 terms from 1981 to 2013. He was a Democrat and served as chairman of the House Financial Services Committee and was leading co-sponsor of the 2010 uh, monumental legislation the Dodd, referred to as the Dodd-Frank Act. He's a resident in Newton, Massachusetts, and was considered the most prominent gay politician in the United States during his term in Congress. Uh, he was born in Bayonne, New Jersey, I want to give a shout out to Bayonne, Bayonne New Jersey, because I was born in North New Jersey, not far away. So, Congressman, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you, neighbor. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, uh, uh, probably not, but in 2016, I was lucky enough to stay back, uh, to be backstage at the Iowa caucuses at a rally uh, with you and Tom Harkin and Bill Clinton. And uh, during that, that, that brief encounter, which was, was a lot of fun for me, uh, you and Tom Harkin got into a little uh, uh, a friendly argument about who's, who supported D.C. statehood first. But you were one uh, of the first members of Congress to do that. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I got to vote for ratification uh, of the amendment that we had uh, to give votes back in the 70s by the Massachusetts legislature. But as you know, the uh, people opposed to uh, a woman's right to choose decided that D.C. would be too supportive of that right and mobilized against it. Yeah, it was a big problem for us. And that was that was an amendment that when, you know, when, when finally passed uh, in Congress, uh, didn't make it to ratification just for that very, very reason. But we thank you for always being supportive of, uh, of that legislation. And, you know, we're working hard at it now. We have a, a, a piece of uh, a statehood bill that's passed the House of Representatives and sits in the Senate, uh, doomed, unfortunately, uh, due to the filibuster. Uh, but uh, we and, have and ironically, Michael, as you know, due to the votes of states that have smaller populations than the district. Yes, absolutely, and that's the irony, isn't it, Congressman? Uh, that 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 we are doomed, doomed by states that have smaller populations than the district. Uh, but let me ask you uh, uh, first and foremost, since you served so long on the Financial Services uh, Committee. Uh, back in the 1980s, a guy named James Carvel coined a phrase for 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 Bill Clinton: uh, "It's the economy, stupid." We all remember that. Is the are are we doomed to lose the midterm elections because of the economy, uh, Congressman? What do you think? 
Well, we're in trouble because, although I, I do think, uh, unfortunately, some the Supreme Court's partisanship has recently uh, played a role in so that the Republicans are going to get an edge in the gerrymandering process in the House. I believe in the Senate. That's uh, that's still very much an open question. I, there are some good Senate candidates. Uh, I think Donald Trump's typically arrogant, clumsy intervention in Georgia is very good news for Raphael Warnock. So I don't concede the Senate. But but your question is essentially right. We are getting hurt by the economy. Uh, look, life isn't fair. The, uh, the the economic problems now are not the Democrats' fault or Joe Biden's fault. The uh, question of inflation uh Republicans are arguing, well, that's just an American problem. But in fact, inflation is a worldwide problem. Inflation in Europe is about the same as inflation in America, higher by one measurement, lower by another, but very close. The energy crisis, the war in Ukraine, all those things contribute. It does appear now that the Federal Reserve should have uh, gotten a little tighter interest rates. But by the way, when the Federal Reserve Board was not raising interest rates back last year. That was a decision made by Trump appointees. Donald Trump had a majority of his appointees controlling the Federal Reserve. So those who believe the problem was, and I think there's an argument here, that the Federal Reserve probably should have moved a little quicker, uh, are criticizing, by and large, Donald Trump's appointees. Now, it's not that doesn't make them bad people. I was glad Mr. Powell was reappointed. Um, so at the answer to your question, short answer, given too long here, yeah, we're going to be hurt by the economy, even though that's not a good, uh, a relevant factor. The other thing to say, though, is that uh, even with the little bump that we got in this past quarter, the economy is performing very well. You know, the problem is when you're in government, if uh, nine things are going well and two are going badly, you're going to hear about the two. So, yes, we have higher inflation than we than is healthy. But we also have a much stronger economy and less unemployment than anybody expected at this point. But voters, isn't it true that that uh, since most of us are not in the stock market and most of us don't have big 401ks and 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 uh, most of the, the indicators for most voters in America are gas prices and food prices. Are they not? If the if, ga- if we can't get gas prices and food prices down, uh, yeah, we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, that's Actually, if you look at inflation, one of the major contributors was the price of cars. So if you weren't planning to buy a, an additional car and new use, you weren't hit as bad. Uh, it is also the case that wages are going up, especially for the people who have been uh, uh, most unfairly treated in America, people in the lower wage groups. They're not going up as high as inflation, but uh, they are going up considerably, and that's a trend we should be encouraging. Morelia, don't let me monopolize the conversation, which I will do because this, <laughs> this man is one of my heroes. Go ahead. Absolutely. Lovely to have you here, Congressman. And I've always um, followed your career because I myself worked in um, in politics a little bit different than yours. But um, I worked in the Reagan administration in Bush one. But um, in it was insofar as Dodd-Frank and I know you and the legislation and eventually the law was meant to address the failures in the financial system and prevent future crises like the one that it was meant to address in 2008. But time and time again, when a fix is needed by Congress, the pendulum often swings, you know, quite widely. And it was controversial, received a lot of criticism as overreaching. It was like what eight hundred you you know this yourself eight hundred ninety eight pages long and it was about two twenty two thousand pages of rulemaking and there were about one hundred and forty attempts to appeal or amend it. Um, so my question is, with all that in mind, um, has it made a difference? Are our banks, our financial system, safer, less risky today? And and as a result of the regulations. Um, are they still thriving, or have we just generated more business for financial or regulatory lawyers? Oh, I think there's a pretty strong consensus that it's worked very well. Um, mm-hmm. 
the uh, Financial Services Committee on which I served had a hearing, which is very ably led by uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who's doing a great job. And at that hearing, one of my former colleagues, Congressman Ed Perlmutter from Colorado, they had all the heads of the six biggest banks, Morgan Stanley, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, et cetera, Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. And he asked them what they thought of how Dodd-Frank has worked. And they all said, basically, it's worked very well and we have no major changes. Um, and you're right, there have been all these efforts to amend it. But the key is that none of them went through. Um, the Republicans were much more uh, focused on trying to do something about Obamacare, although by now that's become too popular mm-hmm. for them. Uh, but it was clear in the beginning, the American public was supportive of what we were doing. Um, I have a couple of specifics. First, yes, it's 800 pages or so. That's, by the way, because it's really 10 separate bills. If you go back to the era of Franklin Roosevelt, they passed legislation equal in scope to what we did. The difference was they did it in separate bills. There was a bill for the bank. There was a bill for the Securities Exchange Commission, et cetera. And there's a very simple reason that uh, Senator Brown will learn when, I, when, as I hope, he gets to the Senate. We in the House took the same path. And we had eight or nine separate bills because it covered consumer protection, mortgage loans, derivatives, a whole range of things. And my uh, colleague, Senator Dodd, who's a great legislator, I said, well, we're going to send you these eight bills. He said, oh, my God, don't do that because of something we have now learned is a terribly destructive thing, the filibuster. He said, you know, I got to get 60 votes in this Senate on every bill we pass. I don't think I can survive having to get eight separate 60s. You got to put mm-hmm. them all in one bill. So, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, if you look at how we dealt with them in the House, we we uh, voted on them, considered them as separate bills, and then we consolidated them. The last point, yes, it has worked very well. In the first place, the economy has been very strong. Uh, the problem now, remember, is that there is uh, the economy is too strong, according to many people, and that's where we have inflation pressure. But secondly, if someone had said uh, years ago, look, you're going to have this terrible pandemic that's going to really wreck the economy, I think everyone would have expected under the old rules that there would have been a financial crisis. And sometimes in politics, the most important things you've done is the thing you've prevented from happening. And I'm very proud of the fact that we've gone through this terrible economic upheaval with no financial crisis whatsoever. And I think that's because we put the rules in place. Interesting. Let let me ask you, given what you just said about putting the bills together, you know, we've just gone through a a period here where uh, in front of the Senate was consideration of two voting rights bills, the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and another bill that would have extended voting rights. You think it would make sense for us to take the D.C. statehood bill, which is uh, a separate bill that stands before the Senate, maybe and reconvene and put those three voting rights bills together? Might it have a better chance of, of passage if we were able to figure out a way to put them all together in one new expanded voting rights package? think there's any viability in that? In the first place, I have to say, uh, uh, you know, I don't serve in the Senate, and, and that's a very specific decision. Obviously, all three of those are very important. But, you yeah. know, these become matters of legislative judgment in the, in the specific context. As I said, uh, you know, uh, 12 years ago, I planned to do all these bills separately. We voted on them separately in committee. Uh, but then because of the Senate, Senator Dodd said, no, that's that's not going to work. I can't, I can't get that through. So the first answer is that depends on the specifics of the Senate. The second answer, though, is that unfortunately, in the modern Republican Party, well, it's not very modern, but it's the, uh, the current one, I don't think there's any support for much of that at all. That is, you know, they're all so negative that uh, my initial view is that uh, you, you wouldn't pick up any votes by adding uh, D.C. statehood. In fact, you might conceivably 
lose one or two of the Republicans because they they like having the advantage they have both in the Electoral College and in the Senate by these small, very conservative states that have significant overweight, thanks to the Constitution. And uh, they're going to defend that. And, and having the District of Columbia enjoy some of those rights threatens them. Let, let, let me change gears for just a second. Um, LGBTQ rights seem to be under attack across America. Is is that something different? I mean, it, it, do, are we seeing, uh, do gay people in America need to be more worried about what's going on now? Uh, it's my recollection that uh, gay people have always been under attack in America. So uh, do we see, uh, you know, these recent moves like the thing in Florida with DeSantis? You know, it's my it's my opinion that every gay person or everybody that supports gay people in America should go out and buy a, a Disney sweatshirt somewhere and <laughs> wear it. But but. Uh, what do you think, uh, Congressman? Do gay people have more to be worried about now than they had 10 years ago? No, but it's understandable. Here's the issue. When you're engaged in a social movement, you start with a very low degree of success and you fight for success. Two, two dynamics at work. First of all, you may be getting successful. By the way, being a gay or lesbian or bisexual person in America today, and even a transgender person, although running into more resistance, is much better for you than uh, it was before. I, you know, this year will mark the 35th anniversary of my announcing that I was gay. I was the first member of, of, of Congress to, to make that announcement voluntarily. And back then, there were a whole lot of restrictions. Uh, so let's look at some of the gains that are not at issue, same-sex marriage. 20 years ago, you had Republicans acting as if that was going to be the end of, uh, of family life. Same-sex marriage is now a fact in America. It's not being contested anywhere. All of the negative predictions turned out to have been wrong. In uh, much of the country, gay men, lesbians, bisexual people are protected. The, the, so the legal status for most LGB people is pretty improved and not seriously under assault. Um, there is a problem with transgender people, and their rights are still being contested. That's still a new issue. But uh, once again, if you look at the degree of progress, we're way ahead of, uh, of where we were. And the other thing is that I'm optimistic for this reason. If you uh, poll people on this subject or you talk to them, what you find is this. The younger people are, the more fully supportive they are uh, of, of full rights for anybody, regardless of his or her gender or sexual orientation. So this is a problem that I think will continue to recede. Uh, you know, sometimes you have an issue where younger people are on one side, but as they get older, they switch sides. But what we see here is generational. Uh, younger people began years ago being less prejudiced, and they continue to be less prejudiced. And the, the big factor here now is that uh, reality can trump bigotry. Uh, Anti-LGBT sentiments flourished, frankly, when we were hidden, and they, re they were reinforced by the fact that nobody knew who we were. So myths about us perpetuated. But as people have gotten to know the reality, that's gotten uh, much better. Uh, and in fact, I have to say, and I'm uh, disappointed by this, we have been making more progress in the last couple of decades on LGBT issues than on race. And, and I've always felt race was the more serious problem. You know, that was symbolized by that one week in 2013 when the Supreme Court made two major decisions. One, they allowed same-sex marriage everywhere, which is a great advance for personal liberty. But secondly, in a terrible decision, they basically gutted the Voting Rights Act. And that's been the basis for a lot of the problems since. So I would say uh, 
we're continuing to make progress on LGBT issues, but I, I am disappointed that there's, there's been more slippage, sadly, on race. Well, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with what you just said, uh, Congressman. You know, we all have, you know, the reality of the situation. We all work with gay people that we respect. We all have gay friends and neighbors that, that, that we cherish. And we all have gay members of our family that we love. So uh, I think it, it is the reality, uh, uh, whereas we're still able, race is still uh able something that uh, that's unfortunately able to define us. Uh, You're right, Michael. And that's, you just made the point. Um, every gay person I know has a lot of straight relatives, but right. not that many black people have a lot of white relatives. Yeah, uh, you know, that's I was just reading a book. Um, uh, as I said, I, I think racism has been much worse than homophobia. And at every score, uh, African-Americans, blacks have had a much worse time. There's only one advantage gay people had over over African-Americans. No no black teenager ever, have, ever had to worry about the reaction of coming out to his parents. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but one, one, can I just tell one anecdote? Yeah, please. Um, please. I was reading about when they were debating in uh, Parliament in England about uh, lifting the ban on gay people. And Margaret Thatcher was a terrible anti-gay bigot. And uh, there was an effort to repeal the law that said if you had consenting sex between adults, you could go to jail. And there was a man who was pushing hard to that in the House of Lords. And finally, he got the bill through the House of Lords on another issue he cared about to protect sea turtles. But after <laughs> they passed the bill to protect sea turtles, they defeated the bill to protect gay people. And someone said to him, well, how do you account for the difference between the vote in favor of sea turtles and uh, you know the, the vote to not discriminate against sea turtles, but the vote to discriminate against gay people? He said, well, there aren't that many sea turtles serving in the House of Representatives for the <laughs> House of Lords. Well, you know, let me go on record as a former Maryland Terrapin uh, that I'm oh, all for okay. protecting. I'm all for protecting sea turtles and gay people. Uh, Very good. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Absolutely. Um, just to get off uh, specific issues, uh, um, if I may, in uh, Congressman, in, in 2004 and 2007, I'm sure you know what I'm going to say. You are rightfully voted by Hill staffers as the brainiest, funniest, and most eloquent member of Congress, which you deserve that, well-deserved. But I Thank have you. to say, and I, I'm sure you'll agree with me, that if Congressman Mike Siner had not passed away, you would have had some serious competition. <laughs> but you are. But the point, the more on a serious note, the point I want to make is that this no longer happens. I don't think we have these votes anymore. I don't think we have these, um, this sort of lightness of, of being, if you will, in terms of that. And more importantly, a focus on intelligence. Um, back then, you featured and Mike Siner featured on C-SPAN and it was big and people tuned in, tuned in, tuned in both to the radio and television C-SPAN. And they asked substantive questions because they were well informed and they were interested and they were respectful. Also, um, there is one very poignant um episode, I think it was one of those morning shows where um, Mike Siner was discussing debt and the deficit and the balanced budget. Those aren't simple topics. And and yet there were, were, there were fewer outlets back then. There were certainly no Google, no social media for people to go running and, and get a quick education on. Um, but yet today we don't have that. It seems to me that people, the citizenry is not educated. Um, and it seems to me, and this is a question that when Dodd-Frank was passed, perhaps there was a more educated citizenry um, and you don't see good thought pieces by members of Congress like the kind that you wrote in the Financial Times or much less Lunch with the FT, which which you featured. And I used to write for the Financial Times, so I'm very um, focused on this. Um so what what do you think can be done? I mean, I do think that the education um, has gone downhill and people don't have the substance nor nor the interest. Do you agree? And what do you think can be done? 
Oh, I absolutely agree. Um, by the way, let me join in your uh, lamenting the early death of Mike Sinai. Uh, he actually, he and I lived across the street from each other when we were I know you did. On Southeast, on 8th Street Southeast, we were a park from Eastern Market. Um, yes, I remember waving to you one time from Mike's front port, front uh, door. In fact, one day, Mike, one day saw somebody uh, leaving my house. He'd broken in. He chased him. He didn't catch him. Mike was a wonderful, right. <laughs> wonderful guy. Um, and, and it I, made I, the I Washington do, Post. Oh, maybe I, do, I do miss him. Uh, but as far as the voting, one of the major reasons you don't see those polls these days is the total collapse of collegiality. Back in those days, yes. Democrats and Republicans could put aside partisan and they would, a Republican would vote for a Democrat as a good orator, or a Democrat would vote for a Republican as a hard mm-hmm. worker. Things have hardened now, and I don't mm-hmm. know what would happen. On the other hand, if it came to a contest of who said the funniest things, I, I'm not confident I would beat Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but... I think, uh, you know, I think that, that you'd have to put a, the parameters within reality uh, around that. Who said the well, that's kid, true, but, but it, it, it is, the other one, though, is they used to have a category of uh, best-dressed man and best-dressed woman. So now I guess Madison Cawthorne would be a, a candidate for both. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, uh, let me ask you uh there's been a Boston Globe study. If we could talk about the Democratic Party again for for a minute, because you've been so uh, you've been in the Democratic Party so long. Uh, there's a recent Boston Globe uh, uh, poll that shows that uh, the approval of the president is forty six percent in Massachusetts in a place where he beat Donald Trump by more than thirty three points. Uh, this is especially weak. His approval rating is especially weak among young people. Uh, what does the Democratic Party need to do to get young people back in, in, in the fold? What do you think? Are, are we making mistakes there? Do we need to do more on college loans and, and things like that in order to, to shore up our support among young people? Well, there are two things that I think Joe Biden should do. One is substantial reduction in student loan debt for people uh, graduated according to your income. Uh, you phase it out so at some point, you know, uh, people don't get it if their incomes are too high. Um, and he also, uh, I am disappointed that he's still sort of stuck in the old anti-marijuana mode. You know, marijuana to me is about like same-sex marriage. Um, it's something a lot of people wanted to do, but other people thought if it happened, it would have all these terrible social negative impacts. And then in a couple of cases, we started doing it. And by now, uh, people are aware that, no, they don't have those negative impacts and they're going forward. And I don't know why the president holds back on that. But generally, I think there's not a lot we can do for this reason. People forget and they don't have a historical perspective. And this goes back. To, to, to the question you asked me about the media and public opinion. Remember, the, there are 50 Democratic senators. That's no majority. And in fact, if you judge by historical standards, what Biden and the Democrats have done has been very impressive given that. We've all, never had total party unity. Um, there was the infrastructure bill. There was a $1.9 trillion We've built there are some other things that, that have happened. The problem is that, uh, and this goes back to the media situation, uh, you, you don't get, I think, explanations of what's happening. And uh, people say, well, I voted the Democrats and uh, I didn't get what I wanted. Well, I feel that way too. But I didn't vote for, for Senator Manchin. Now, Senator Manchin, uh, I wish he would vote differently. But on the other hand, uh, we've got to acknowledge if he wasn't there, we wouldn't even have had the Supreme Court justice nominated because he would almost certainly be replaced by a Republican. So I think what you have is young people who want the president ought to act on, on marijuana and on uh, student loans. But two, uh, we have to try to explain to people that uh, the, the reality is what it is. 
And there's one last point I would make. Yeah, 46% approve uh, uh, Joe Biden. But you mentioned his margin over Trump. Uh, the number of people who uh, approve Donald Trump is, of course, much lower. And I believe that if, uh, mm-hmm. if Biden ran against Trump again this time, which could happen, the margin would be similar. Um, do you see any challengers uh, on the horizon to uh, the president in 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 2024? He he is the presumptive our presumptive nominee. Um, do you do you think that uh, I remember 1980, Congressman, the 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 brief fight that that uh, uh, Ted Kennedy had against my boss, who was Jimmy Carter. Uh, and uh, it didn't last very long. Uh, I think we defeated uh, uh, Kennedy on the first vote uh, at the convention. But do you see a contentious convention ahead for the... No, probably, no probably because of the example you gave. And I was part of that in... Uh, uh, I think the life went from 1980, and I was a Kennedy supporter, and I acknowledge now that was not a great idea. And uh, I think it weakened Jimmy Carter. Those kind of, I mean, I don't know, you've been in politics, both of you. You have people sometimes say, oh, a primary is great. I, I love having a primary, and I will tell you, based on my own experience, anytime you hear someone talk about how wonderful it is to have a primary, you're talking about somebody who's never had one. Um, and uh, the, um, no, if if President Biden decides to run again, um, and his health is good, look, uh, you know people talk about health. Ronald Reagan, sadly, uh, was mentally fairly gone by the last years of his term. It's now yeah. clear that the Iran Contra issue, he was uh, is not with it. The Biden, on the other hand, has shown none of that. Um, you know, one of the great people talk about Harry Truman. Joe Biden's performance with regard to the Russian attack on Ukraine is one of the best examples of foreign policy leadership an American president has ever shown. And people who follow this understand that. Um, but if he decides to run again, uh, no, I do not think uh, there will be opposition again based on you know, how that backfired in 1980, even on the people who wanted to see the change. Uh, if he decides not to run, that's possible then uh, it's wide open. Marilia, you have a question? Yeah. Um, what more, as, as a woman who is on the sidelines watching this atrocity, this, this tragedy, this barbaric um, scene unfold in the Ukraine with all those people suffering at the hands of that madman psychopath, um, I just wish and hope that something else can be done in terms of helping the Ukrainians, in terms of helping their military. So do you think that, is is there anything more that Biden can do at this point, other than provide the amount of um, military warfare that he's provided? I'm always, you know, pushing for him to do more, but I, but I don't know. I'm not a foreign policy expert. No, that's, this is a good expert. example. I share your views. This is a good example, though, of, of the constraints on the president when you judge him. One of the things that Joe Biden has done that has really been extremely impressive is bring this European uh, coalition and Japan. He's, he's got a very effective coalition of the leading economic powers of the world against Russia. I mean, Germany, which had been laggard, <clears throat> is now fully involved. So here's Biden's uh, dilemma. There are things he might want to do individually but if he does them, he may lose support in the mm. European countries. And one of the things we know about sanctions, people say sanctions don't work. But I was there when one time sanctions did work. You'll remember this. Nelson Mandela, one of my proudest moments, was standing mm. in the Statuary Hall in the Capitol and listening to Nelson Mandela thank the members of Congress because we overrode Ronald Reagan's veto to mandate sanctions against the racist regime of South Africa. And Mandela said that was a major factor in my being here today in front of you. So, and that was because we had a worldwide sanctions network. If only America were doing things, yes, we could maybe do something a little harsher, but we wouldn't have the support of other countries. 
So what Biden has done is to get a broad coalition. And in the interest of that broad coalition, he's not done everything he could have done right away. They're doing more and more. And the most recent uh, yeah. request for sending stuff. Uh, and, you know, I was glad that they called it the Lend-Lease program. This is, and I agree with you, I mean, Putin is Hitler. <clears throat> uh, people talk about people totally. too quickly. But his, uh, he is following the Hitler approach of going after mm-hmm. uh, Austria, the Sudeten, Germans, etc. It's a terribly racist approach. But I, I do think Biden is doing everything it is possible to do while still holding together that coalition. And to the extent that there may be a little less that we're actually doing by America alone, that's more than compensated for by the importance of having so many other countries joining. Interesting. Let me ask you, do you think there's any chance? You know what scares me, Congressman? I think about this all the time, that somehow it it seems like 1939 to me. When you look at uh, people like Modi in India, who's also kind of a a fundamentalist nut, and uh, Mm. Kim in, in, in North Korea, and the guy in Venezuela, is there? You think there's any chance that Putin will put together a coalition uh, that's somehow like well, that's that? A very, powers were good, in the 1930s. It's a good question, Michael. And I share your disappointment with some of these people. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Modi. Um, I've been, as many of us have been, very strongly against what would appear to be anti-Muslim prejudice in America. But you know where? There is now rampant anti-Muslim persecution. It's in India. Um, And I'm disappointed that some of the uh, Muslim countries are not standing up uh, to defend. I mean, Muslims have been the victims in China and in Xinjiang and in uh, Myanmar, but especially in India. Mm -hmm. There are are virtual pogroms there. uh, But it is disappointing to see so many of these uh, non-Western countries doing this. The uh, optimistic vote, though, is that they they do not have the the strength. I mean, uh, Hitler had his main ally, Japan, um, so that there is not that. The countries we we have seen openly signing with Russia don't have that. The fear, however, is China, which is, of course, a major power and acting with the uh, amorality that uh, characterizes them. Um, So, yeah, there is that potential. Uh, of Russia and China together. Um, but the big difference between now and 1939 is the leadership that is being shown by the, the elected leaders in the democratic nation. And I know it's common to say, oh, things have gotten so much worse, et cetera. But I think if you look at the response of the democracies, America, France, Britain, et cetera, to Putin, and you compare that to the lack of Spine and moral commitment to Hitler, uh, things have gotten better in that in that eighty year period. Mm-hmm. Let me switch gears one more time. Uh, your alma mater recently announced that they're going to give a hundred million dollars towards reparations in recognition of um, I don't know if. It's, Recognition of their role in slavery, but uh, recognition of America's role in slavery. We've also seen Georgetown University and UVA uh, do similar things. Uh, what do you think about this? We've had many people on the show to talk about reparations. And, and let me first tell you my feeling. My feeling is that, that uh, we have looked at reparations as compensation for the wrong that was done to African-Americans during slavery. But I think when Harvard and some of these places, the educational institutions step up to the plate, it's more of a recognition of the contribution that African-Americans have made to to America. It's a recognition that they own a piece of the, pro, piece of the pie because uh, they worked uh, to make it what it is today. What do you, what do you think? Well, I believe that uh, what the universities are doing is also acknowledging that they have been very direct beneficiaries of the yes. uh, of slave labor. I mean, that you know, the, the, these 
there's a continuity there in Harvard and Georgetown are today what they are in part because of what they were. And it is very clear that it's uh, slave labor and the exploitation of slavery, the money that they got at Georgetown, those have contributed. And so I think those are really sort of deferred payments for services rendered to specific mm-hmm. institutions and are very much in favor of them. As far as reparations as a policy, uh, I do not see how it would work if it were people are talking or should work if we're talking about money to individuals. I do believe that uh, we, we have this enormous debt that we owe to people who were victimized. And I always believe that the, the begetting sin of America was racism. And uh, I believe that we should be following policies that reimburse people in effect or compensate people for the damage done to them. Um, but I also believe it, it's a, it should be merged uh, with economics. So part of the problem is that uh, the, the mistreatment of racism is one of the reasons you've had the economic disparity. So I am in favor of institutions that benefited from slavery, uh, as I said, reimbursing the descendants. As far as the national issue is concerned, yeah, I think there should be policy. Look, one of the big problems we have is the uh, assault on affirmative action that's coming. Uh, That is a terrible thing. One of the things I'm very proud of, by the way, you mentioned the financial reform bill uh, under the leadership of Maxine Waters, who's an extraordinarily talented member of Congress. People don't recognize, you know, you talk about, people talk about how big the bill is. We put in a whole section requiring all the financial regulators, which are eight or nine, to uh, build up their anti-racism part and to have inclusion and diversity sectors. And we uh, press the financial institutions uh, to do more. So I am very much in favor of an active effort to have policies that that seek to uh, uh, overcome the negative effects uh, of of uh, the racism that was not just slavery. And look at, obviously, if you're talking about making up for bad practices, it didn't end with slavery. Uh, it continued and got even worse in many ways during the Reconstruction period. Morelia, do you have a question? Yeah. Um, if I may get back to Congress um, in terms of the the climate, it's just... Any more self-gain is is the compass in politics and political gains are, are the driving force in what wins. Any sort of sordid behavior goes. It's not substance. It's not an educated or interested legislator. It's not democracy as a result. Um, and it's it seems, you know, from the Matt Gates of the world to everybody else there, um, even Kevin McCarthy lying and, and then being, you know, found out by the tape that he was lying. And, and that's just one example, but it's immoral approaches and behavior that make and, and take the headlines. So how do we get back to the good old, good old days with, you know, the LBJs of the world, working with Dirksen, Jack Kemp, with the Democrats? What do you, what do you think? We're back to the voters. Um, you know, a part of the problem is when we talk about the motives of politicians. You have to begin mm-hmm. with a fundamental fact. If you don't want decisions to be influenced by politics, don't ask 500 politicians to make them. I mean, that's just <laughs> kind of inevitable. And what has happened, though, it's gotten worse. And it's gotten worse. And some of the things you mentioned, the media, the, the problem has been that the most extreme elements in American politics have uh, gained influence. And you know what part of the problem is, uh, I believe, it's the fact that it's a natural reaction when people are angry with what's happening. Some of them withdraw from it. So what happens is that the more reasonable people are put Mm -hmm. off by these antics, and they say, okay, I'm not going to get involved. The key statistic here is look at the difference in the number of people who vote in elections and in primaries. And the problem is that we have a very unrepresentative sample of people voting in primaries. Now, it's mostly their fault. We do have voter suppression, obviously, uh, in in parts of the country, but there are people who could vote who don't. 
And uh, mm-hmm. I, the answer is to try and get non-extremists, frankly, to vote in primaries. That's the big issue. I try to give an example of that. Liz Cheney, I think, is making a mistake. She's running for renomination as a Republican in Wyoming. I wrote a column mm-hmm. in the Post that said, no, she should run as an independent so mm-hmm. Democrats can vote for her in November. But uh, so it's the fact that reasonable people don't vote in primaries, plus the, the intensity uh, of the social media that, that uh, and that the people who listen to social media, uh, well, people shut off social media, as I do, but they then don't vote in primaries. So that mm-hmm. I don't think there is a solution other than the voters. Now, one thing is, and obviously I'm interested in this in other cases, the question will be this, will the Republicans be punished for some of this? Because, yes, there have been problems with some Democrats, but it's been pretty one-sided. Uh, it's the Republicans mm-hmm. who have been engaged in this, who wouldn't vote to certify the election, uh, who support... Uh, Absolutely. J.D. Vance is this... Uh, I wrote a book, and he's running for Senate in Ohio. He's supposed to be an enlightened guy, Yale law school graduate. He was campaigning with Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene. So, yeah. so the, it's in the hands of the voters. Uh, if the voters start to punish this kind of behavior, it'll end. But if they reward it, it won't. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let and me also- just – I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, also, I think the, 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 the sordid nature of politics anymore also keeps out potentially really good people from running for office. So that goes like a hand in hand with what you're saying about the voters. I agree with that. You know. And let me just add to, to, to what you said, Congressman, about primaries. In the District of Columbia, the primary is the only election that counts. Because we're so solidly Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, if you win the Democratic primary, you go out on election day and give people cookies. Uh, no Democrat has ever won the Democratic primary uh, and then lost the general election. But yet in D.C., we don't even understand that. You know, there's yes. still very low, low voter turnout in, in, in our primaries as, as, as important yeah. as they are. Well, we're starting to run out of time here, uh, Congressman. A couple of quick questions. One, do you miss Congress? And two, are you doing anything fun in your retirement? Well, yeah, two, I, uh, I, I do miss Congress. I don't miss the stresses. I don't miss having to make tough decisions. Uh, but I do miss the people. Um, and, and you're right, good people were being discouraged. But I was lucky enough to be there when good people weren't discouraged. And not only were my my colleagues, interesting people, one of the great bargains the American people have gotten, and I hope this we don't lose it, is the willingness of so many talented young people and, and people in general who are bright and dedicated to work in the Congress for a lot less money and a lot more stress than you get in the private sector. So I miss working uh, with all those people. As far as what I'm doing, I'm trying to do some writing and, and working on a, on a book. and. Uh, uh, but I, I uh, as I said to my husband the other day, uh, it is very nice not to have to get up when I don't want to get up and to relax <laughs> and uh, be free of stress. And uh, the, the uh, I guess I said the single biggest advantage of not being in Congress is that I haven't marched in a parade in 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can understand that. We just had our little uh, Emancipation Day parade, which goes three blocks, is a pain in the ass. It takes hours to line up. Uh, yeah, so I certainly... I yeah, you know, Michael, people say, I hear politicians say, oh, I love campaigning. My answer is, well, if you love campaigning so much, how come you don't do it if you don't have an opponent? Yeah, exactly. Well, they do do it in the sense that they they still try to raise money, whether they have an oh, right, yeah. congressman. But uh, well, I have a uh, yeah. The other thing yeah, I can say is I, I I have a bucket list that is things that I want to get done, but I don't want to be crude. But I have another list that kind of rhymes with bucket, and uh, there's a lot of things I don't have to do. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> I hope you're getting to spend time with your family. And let me, since we're on the subject, just give a shout out. 
to your sister, Ann Lewis, who was a, a, a great, um, you know, force in the Democratic Party and was Absolutely. at one time the national political uh, leader for the Democrats. And she was, a, uh, she's a my former colleague. She was one of the pioneers for women to be in real political positions. And I'm very grateful, as I mentioned, I, I was at her house in uh, Maryland for the Seder, and my her husband, my brother-in-law, found the, the hearing aid I lost. So I'm very grateful to that All right. in particular. Well, well, finally, you you found a use for brother-in-laws. I haven't. I get to find a use for mine. But uh, um, uh, you know, yeah, she really was a force, and and very well respected. You know, yes. that's one thing you you know in politics, uh, uh, Congressman. If you can't find people saying bad things about you, it really says something. It really says something because there's so few people that that uh, rise to that level. Well, right, if she ever feels if she ever feels that she doesn't have enough people being critical of her, I could lend her a few of mine. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that. Uh, uh, spoken like a, a true big brother. But uh, anyway, let me um, just thank you so much for being on our show. We've run out of time here, uh, unfortunately. We hope that when you finish writing that book, that you'll come back and be our guest again. Oh, I'd Anything love to. Absolutely. Else, Aurelia? No, absolutely. That would be wonderful. When do you think it will, will be out? I'm, I'm hoping early next year. Okay. Right. That That's around the corner. Yeah. yeah. Can't wait to read it because Absolutely. I'm sure you have First, so many interests. I have interest to do more work to get it in than before it comes out, but I'm on it. All right. I'm sure you are. Well, great. Well, we hope to speak to you All right. You well, again. thank you, guys. I enjoyed this. Thank, thank you. you. It was wonderful. Really it was. Really was. Thank and, you, Congressman. And we always dedicate a song at the end of the show. So here's a song from a former hippie uh, to uh, a man that I admired so much while he was in Congress, and I still admire. Here's one from a classic from Bob Dylan by the Birds called "My Back Pages." Uh, we'll see you next week. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote.